healthcare unfiltered. Ashadi Nabhan Podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And today is going to be a fireworks podcast. I've got doctors Liz Brem, Aaron Goodman, or Papahim, and Alan Skarbnik goes by Scarbs. The three are coming on the show to talk about real-world evidence versus clinical trials, clinical trials versus real-world evidence, what's good, what's bad, is there any middle way in between? We're going to use a clinical trial that was recently published in Lancet that combined venetoclax with dose-adjusted EPOC-R in patients with large cell lymphoma as a platform to try to understand how best do we criticize clinical trials? Is there a better approach? There was a lot of fiasco on Twitter and on social media when it came to this trial. And Papahim got the grunt of it, and some people attacked him and yelled at him. So we're going to actually give Papa a chance to discuss this and what actually went on. Now, for context, that clinical trial enrolled patients with double hit lymphoma, as well as patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, not otherwise specified. Diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is the most common lymphoma in the United States. One third of lymphoid malignancies are DLBCL. These patients are created with RCHOP. And there was a trial that actually compared RCHOP with dose-adjusted EPOC-R. It was an intergroup trial that showed no advantage to dose-adjusted EPOC-R. So both regimens were equally effective and dose-adjusted EPOC-R was more toxic, although the treatment-related mortality was similar between RCHOP and dose-adjusted EPOC-R. So the trial in question added venetoclax, which is a BCL2 inhibitor, to dose-adjusted EPOC-R. It was a phase one trial, and it was published in Lancet. And Aaron had a lot of criticism to this trial, and SCARBS is going to try to understand these criticisms and you know, we're going to try to debate whether these criticisms are valid, not valid, and so on. So the goal of this podcast is to really surface the uh, arguments between real-world evidence and clinical trials, but also to describe that clinical trials are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And if they are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, how can we really mitigate these clinical trials and what, we, what can we actually do to assure that uh, future clinical trials are appropriate and help patients. At the end of the day, these clinical trials are designed to help patients in need. Our goal is that to improve on the care of the patients, the current standard of care, and hopefully we can improve uh, on the current regimens that we actually have. Okay, before I air the episode that I taped with Alan Skarbnik, Liz Brem, and Aaron Goodman on November 14th, 2021. I want to plug the podcast. I'd ask you to rate the show, subscribe to the show, and refer a friend or a colleague. If you have time, please write a brief review. And don't forget to watch all of these shows on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can also visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com, and message me there as well as watch and listen to all of these podcast episodes. And without further ado, three musketeers, lymphoma specialists discussing all things, real-world evidence, clinical trials, and venetoclax, those are just the EPOC-R.
All right, everyone. This is, I'm honestly extremely excited about this one. Uh, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I've been looking forward uh, all uh, Sunday for this episode that we will air actually around ASH 2021, where everybody thinking hematology. So thanks for tuning into Healthcare Unfiltered. I have three amazing guests today. We're going to talk about broad topics, clinical trials, real world evidence. How do we approach, how do we criticize clinical trials without... Uh, uh, without being criticized ourselves. And then we are going to use a clinical trial that was published in Lancet recently as a platform for this conversation. We can summarize in a little bit. Okay, so we have three amazing colleagues and uh, phenomenal uh, lymphoma and cancer specialists. We start with Liz. You go first, introduce yourself, where you are, and then we go to Alan Scarbs and then we're to Papa, Aaron. All right, uh, I'm Liz Bram. I'm currently at UC Irvine, and it's still weird for me to say that. I think I've been here for like five years, and I still feel like I'm new to California, being a East Coast girl originally. Um, and I'm super excited to be here. Thank you. And and Liz, you do you do all malignant hematology or specific lymphoma or? So my clinic is majority lymphoma. There is some multiple myeloma. And I still, as one of the relatively junior people who is heme boarded, still sometimes hold down the fort with some of the benign hematology. Um, on the inpatient side, it's everything. So I'm just finishing up two weeks on the inpatient service. So I'm pretending to treat leukemia and all kinds of stuff. Excellent. Scarbs, uh, your returning guests, appreciate that. Uh, as you introduce yourself, please tell us how many years before we opened that restaurant. <laughs> I cannot, <laughs> eight more years, I guess. I cannot escape you, apparently. Uh, thanks, <laughs> thanks for inviting me again. Uh, I'm Ellen Skarbnik. Uh, I practice in Charlotte. I'm the director of the lymphoma and CLL program of the Immunofactor Cell Program at Novant Health Cancer Institute in North Carolina. Happy to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you and to Liz and Aaron. Um, it's going to be fun. Great, Alan. And, uh, you know, prior episodes when you were on have had amazing downloads and, um, and viewership. So, you know, I'm inviting you because I have secondary motive. You know, I'm all about the light. <laughs> you have COI. Uh, I got it. Papa. Hey. Uh, first, it's good to be out with three people I consider friends, and uh, hopefully we all get together soon. Um, I'm at UCSD. Uh, I do I do bone marrow transplant. We, I, we do everything. Uh, I don't do benign heme anymore. Maybe a, a week I, I, I volunteer and do the consult service, but uh, uh, lymphoma, leukemia, myeloma, you name it, we do it. And Aaron, when I visited with you at UCSD and I taped uh, me invading your office, that video had had about close to 7,000 views. So uh, I should probably come back to UCSD and see what I, if I can t uh, top that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's start with clinical trials versus real world evidence. Liz, I, I feel a lot in the media, uh, real world evidence gets a huge bad rap where, you know, Stop, you know, we're not living in the unreal world. Real world evidence is not controlled. It's difficult to interpret, uh, whatever. I mean, all of these things. What's your view on real world evidence? Well, I think all those criticisms are fair, right? But at the same time, there's a lot of questions you can't answer for whatever reason it is in a randomized clinical trial, whether that is it's just too difficult to study, whether that's 
honestly, sometimes it's that people hold biases that are so strong, you can't actually do the trial. I think one area that comes to mind when we think about this is the infamous question of, and I know Aaron has opinions on this, the infamous question of CNS prophylaxis and DLBCL, right? So we have all of these retrospectives, some of which are very well done, have tons of patients. And that's a, I don't think anybody would ever let us do a randomized trial, nor do I even know how we would begin to do that. So sure, yeah, it's not perfect, but Sometimes it's what we've got. I mean, Aaron, you you hate real world evidence, right? Yes. Uh, sorry, so someone was. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't hate real world evidence. Uh, I've just been uh, in my uh, you know career. I've just uh, again again been burned by real world evidence, and uh, you know you can kind of the more I see real world real world evidence and retrospective studies studies that I've done myself. Um, you can kind of just get what you want out of it, uh, get the answer you best want. I do recognize that some questions we will not ever be able to answer, but, you know, for the various, you know, things where I'm super critical about, I do think randomized trials uh, can, can be done. And uh, um, I just don't, I don't hold much for real world evidence other than, um, okay, that's possible. Uh, and maybe we should study it further. Alan, where do you stand on real world evidence? Okay. I think, <laughs> Um, well, I think real-world evidence is, is important in a number of ways. Uh, it definitely does not supplant a randomized clinical trial. Uh, obviously, you know, if you're trying to look for a more definitive answer, a randomized clinical trial is, is the gold standard at this point. However, um, there are a number of things, as Liz pointed out, that cannot be a, a, a tease out of a clinical trial or questions that are not asked in a clinical trial even, uh, that may be informed by real world evidence. Um, and not only that, you know, populations in randomized clinical trials are highly selected. So these are patients who have very good performance status, very low levels of comorbidities, uh, perfect kidney function, EF is, and not necessarily they translate to what are the patients that are in front of you, right? And then you see a drug that's approved and you say, well, I wanna use in my patient, but my patient didn't read the clinical trial and he doesn't fit that profile. So am I doing the right thing for the patient or not? I mean, for that particular scenario, that question has not necessarily been answered within the clinical trial, particularly when it's about toxicities, right? not only efficacy, but toxicity, tolerability of, of the drug. And, you know, with, with you and I, Chatty, we, we co-authored a number of clinical of retrospective data sets led by Anthony Mado in CLL that were very informational in the setting. I mean, you know, when we had two new drugs approved, Vidala and Ibrutinib for CLL, there was data showing that if you use Ibrutinib first, it seems that the PFS is prolonged. This was prospectively corroborated in the ASCEN trial, for instance, comparing a BTKI versus a, a, a PA3 kinase inhibitor. So, you know, it's something that was informed years before by, by real world evidence. Uh, we show that, for instance, the rates of discontinuation of ibrutinib in the real world due to adverse events were much higher than the rates of discontinuation in the clinical trials, that the PFS that we're seeing in the real world uh, this didn't really reflect necessarily what the clinical trial showed because <clears throat> the patients have more comorbidities, they discontinued the drug more often. So these are things that are in addition to information from clinical trial, 
Uh, and when a clinical trial is not available for a particular question, CNS prophylaxis case in point here, um, or other diseases that are more rare or other instances where there's more rare, that informs your decision of how to treat the patient. Now, we cannot say definitely this is the best way to do it or this is the worst way to do it, but at least it's informational uh, to some extent. Uh, and, you know, they're good, they're good uh, uh, data sets, they're bad data sets, they're good ways to do it, they're bad ways to do it. Even the FDA, and I know Aaron's opinion was recently published on synthetic arms, uh, I think that's something, something up for debate, but you know, retrospective real world data sets that inform synthetic arms with the objective of minimizing uh, number of accrued patients in clinical trials or, or decreasing costs and things like that. Obviously not a perfect world, but I think more, the more we deal with, with, with proper data collection, AI integration of data collection with EMRs, some of the obstacles that exist in trusting the data and trusting how the data is collected uh, may be to some extent supplanted. But having said all that, this does not replace a randomized clinical trial at all. I think we all agree with that. So, so Aaron, what do you think if I tell you, I'm going to throw something at you that you might think is provocative. I think that while you can never replace randomized control trials, I think randomized control trials are the biggest biased approach to answering questions I've ever seen in my life. It is taking patients that are young, mainly Caucasians, lack comorbidities, have excellent psychosocial support. They're able to drive and go to where the clinical trial exists. They are able to withstand uh, uh, frequent uh, blood draws and biopsies if needed, and then to get the output and the results and then apply it to 90% of the population that does not get enrolled in clinical trials. How much more bias can we go through? It's not perfect. It's better than real-world evidence. I, I mean, the bottom line is the, the real-world evidence can't control. There is just something about it when you're seeing the patient in front of you, taking the account as a physician, all these different variables, no matter how much we control for, uh, for everything, including, you know, when you're just, you know, the doctor decision that you decide to escalate therapy or not uh, based off your gut, you just can't account for that on, on retrospective real-world stuff. And that's why that again and again, uh, and I'm specifically talking about with therapy real-world evidence, not, not for other stuff that you can do real-world data on, uh, uh, but, but specifically for escalating therapy, which is a lot of it where I have problems with, whether it's high-risk for myeloma or EPOC for, for, for lymphoma. Uh, um, you just can't, you can't account for that in any sort of analysis that you do. Uh, you know, the transplant literature is riddled with this. You know, when you, this, by the fact that you're taking them to transplant, you're selecting great people. Even if you try to comp that, you're not because they're going to get the transplant while the ones who didn't, didn't get transplant for whatever reason. So, uh, you know, it, it, the randomized trials aren't perfect, but it, it's still the best that we got in this current situation. Maybe we can make randomized trials better. You know, that's beyond my pay grade, uh, um, but we could maybe do randomized trials more in, in, in sick, frail patients, more like the real world, but in a randomized setting that gets rid of all co-founders. Um, also, my baby's awake, so I apologize. No, no, it's okay. We yeah. actually, that's maybe your, your baby's way to, to fame uh, because that's really how, how it works. But it's okay, don't worry about it. We, we would love to have the baby on the show. Liz, I mean, 
we still don't enroll a lot of patients in trials. What's your, tell listeners your, your, um, the latest stats you know of in terms of enrollment on trials and so forth in the US. Well, it's really funny that you you mentioned it now. I was actually like right before we started this, I was uh, catching up on my ASH poster. And one of my presentations this year is about my study in patients 75 and older with DLBCL, right? So a study, a population that is not frequently studied and really in the US has never been studied. There's been one randomized trial um, in the UK, but never been studied in the US. And so, um, you know, just in kind of reviewing that data, I mean, when you look at certainly the older patients, they account for less than 10% of patients enrolled in NCI clinical trials. So particularly in our older patients, we're doing a dismal, terrible job. And that is one patient population in general. Well, I will, you know, I think there are limitations to the randomized data because those patients just aren't included outside of trials where you're specifically selecting that population, which we're starting to do with some encouragement and handholding from our geriatric colleagues, but we really haven't done a great job to date. And I think I actually don't know the nationwide data. I know we always talk like when you're, you're at a comprehensive cancer center, right? It's the magic number should be 10%, right? 10% of people coming through your door are supposed to be on a clinical trial. And I mean, I have to imagine that outside of the big NCI cooperative trials, it's got to be what? Easily less than 5%, right? Way less than that. Yeah. Right? Probably around 1%. Yeah. yeah. I would absolutely believe that. Yeah, I mean, for you to have like COC accreditation, you need six uh, percent, I believe, of your analytical cases enrolled in a in a clinical trial uh, uh, that needs to be prospective. You need to sign consent for so you know retrospective but, analysis. Uh, uh, but Alan, am I crazy to think that clinical trials are like? I genuinely believe that randomized control trials are extremely biased. Like, yes, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not saying. We can replace them, but I mean, it no. is the most biased approach. Yes, it's biased. Not, not a question. I think everything that we do has bias. Everything that we do has conflicts of interest. Uh, we try to minimize those, right, uh, uh, as much as we can. I mean, there are methods to try and minimize inclusion bias, selection bias, etc., in a prospective clinical trial. However, to your point, and it's pretty much what I was saying before, the population in the trial doesn't reflect the real world population, right? Um, not only do you need to be healthy, they need to have uh, economic health, right? Because it requires them coming for more visits, coming for more tests, coming for more blood work, more imaging that not necessarily is covered by uh, the clinical trial itself. Lots of times this is charged to patient insurance or the patient itself because it's considered standard of care. So uh, um, in, a, in general, patients are gonna end up spending more money to participate in a clinical trial uh, if the, all those costs are not properly covered, particularly in phase three trials, especially if an arm is standard of care, because you yeah. know, they'll be receiving the standard of care and paying more for that. Uh, you know, so, so, so that, yes, you have an economic bias, you have an inclusion bias, you have a number of biases in the study, but I mean, how, how, how to fix that, right? I think particularly in the United States, trials that run in the United States in comparison to European countries uh, where you have universal health care and, and, and access is different. And, you know, they have nationwide uh, uh, PIs where, you know, all hospitals enroll patients in the clinical trial and you have uh, uh, different abilities that we do have here. 
uh, I think it makes a difference. But particularly in the United States, yes, there's absolutely bias. I mean, we include population that's not what we end up seeing on a daily basis. And, and certainly, Aaron, you've been critical of clinical trials. I mean, I think, you know, you're, you, so I, I see that you, um, you know, not all trials, I mean, to your, to your earlier point, that trials are not perfect, but it is, you know, sometimes the best that we have, what are we going to do? And you have voiced some criticisms to some of the clinical trials and, and, and so on. And I think one of the things that you oftentimes, what you, what the counter argument that gets told to you, and I've seen on social media, because I want to really bring that to, to, to light, is that, well, you have not really ran a prospective clinical trial from inception to completion, so how dare you criticize our clinical trial? What, what, ha, right, Aaron? I mean, I've how seen... dare I? How dare I comment on a clinical trial? Uh, you know, how dare I watch a movie and say it sucked because I didn't direct it? Like, how, how dare I? Uh, or critique a chef because I don't know how to cook because I thought the food was bad. Um, Listen, I'm not I'm not criticizing like complexities. I, uh, you know, I, I think I'm criticizing fairly straightforward things that any non-clinician or anyone who's not in medicine or science would agree with me upon. Um, 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 I'm pretty basic things, you know, giving control arms um, therapeutics that we know are uh, inferior to what we would give in the our same exact clinic to the next patient off trial. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. I don't think you need to have designed a multi-center randomized trial to critique that uh, um, or, uh, uh, you know, uh, so yeah, my, I, I mean, I don't, do clinicians that don't run trials not have valid, you know, input to help design trials? Do we not have any insight into this? And by the way, I do like help run some studies. It's not like I'm, I'm a complete foreigner to this. So I, I don't get that argument. I don't buy one bit. Uh, and it actually angers me quite a bit uh, 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 on social media. I never hear that, at least my lovely group in UCSD. I mean, the, we are all very open and I don't get that criticism ever in person, just on social media. Liz, uh, have you seen that uh, on social media or elsewhere where people say, well, not until you run a clinical trial from inception to completion and write it up, your, your arguments are not valid. What's your opinion? I actually haven't seen that. And maybe I've just been like blissfully unaware. And if so, good for me. Um, but it's, it's a, it actually really surprises me to hear this criticism because I mean, think if since medical school, right? We were all doing journal club. We were always taught how to read papers, how to evaluate a study. And because, you know, it's a key skill in medicine, whether you're writing a clinical trial or not. And, you know, when I think of, for example, our community colleagues, right? Um, they're very valuable members of the team. They're, they, many of them enroll lots of patients on clinical trials, whether they're intergroup or industry. And um, their input is incredibly valuable because you need to make sure these studies are going to be feasible in their setting. And so I'm like, I'm a little disheartened to hear that this is a thing because I actually feel like it's a really important skill that we all need to have. And especially just sort of thinking that really clinical trials should be teamwork, um, whether it's, you know, treating investigator, your statistician, whoever. And so it just sort of seems like, um, like I sort of agree with Aaron on this one, like, so I'm okay. I can't compose a thing, but it's okay for me to not like a song. Um, you know, it's not okay. It's a, so, I, you know, and I think, you know, I think hearing Aaron speak, you know, sort of the, the things that come to mind are like, you know, things like use of chlorambucil, for example, is a control arm in CLL. Like, come on guys. Um, I don't need to have finished um, enrolling to a clinical trial for, for that to be a fair criticism. 
scarps uh what, what well, i mean i i agree with everyone i think it's a completely invalid argument i mean it's a logical fallacy it's at ominum at like the pure definition of it right i mean you're attacking the credentials of the interlocutor anyone can criticize a clinical trial it doesn't even need to be a doctor patients patient advocates they're very well educated, you know, can read a clinical trial and say, hey, I don't think this is good for us or this or that or anyone. I mean, anyone, you don't need to be a physician, you can be a nurse, you can be a statistician. As Liz was pointing out, everyone's entitled to an opinion if you read and, and you know, rationally criticize that. Um, I think that's fair game for everyone and saying the argument you haven't run a clinical trial is completely, it's absurd. I mean, no one should use that argument to criticize. But we've seen. We'll give a counterpoint. And I've seen that happening. Uh, uh, I think the issues with social media in particular are, uh, number one, any kind of discussion from whomever it comes and whoever it goes to needs to be civil. Um, I think that, you know, uh, criticizing studies is one thing, criticizing the authors is a very different thing. I think, you know, when, when the level starts going to becomes personal, I think that kind of detracts from the argument on both ends, very, very, very much so. Uh, and, you know, and on top of that, um, I think that, there's a number of people who made careers of being critical trial critics, right? And, um, you know, and then it bags, it's like, you, Dan, you know, what, what's that all about, right? I mean, uh, who watches the Watchmen, right? I, I mean, I think that's kind of the, the, the question there. It's like, someone is criticizing a clinical trial, well, then that person needs to be open to criticism of their criticism to the clinical trial as well. Right. And you so can criticize me all you want. Just don't criticize me that I don't run trials, so I can't criticize. I I'm mean, not criticizing you, Aaron. Yeah. I didn't say that. Yeah, I know, but I, I mean, the, but, the, the you know, it's I, I'm not. I'm just making a no, point. No, but I think others others have point. Others yeah. have criticized Aaron because they said he hasn't ran trials. I guess the question that comes to mind listening to Alan: Are we able to separate the trial from the authors, though? Aren't the authors responsible for the trial? Like, if you're criticizing the trial, isn't that by default you're criticizing the authors who put their name on the trial? I don't think necessarily, no. I mean, you're criticizing a trial, criticize the design of the trial, criticize the inclusion-exclusion criteria of the trial, uh, the conclusions of the trial, how the stats were run. You can criticize the aspects of the trial. Um, when you criticize ethics of the authors who ran the trial, that, that's a problem, right? Not only because people weren't there, you know, they don't know what the discussion, how happened with the patient or not happened, but also leads, especially when it's you know, in an open forum, it does leads to mistrust and distrust in physicians from patients, because patients are watching all of these discussions too. I mean, we talk a lot amongst ourselves on Twitter and social media. Um, you have your podcast on. Don't think that patients are not watching this or not reading this. And then they say, hey, you know what? I was part of this trial. Like, what's that all about? Should I call my doctor? You know, I think that um, 
Yeah, they should. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, if I create a medical error, like I tell my patients, or should we not hide it from them? Well, come on. I mean, I think that's the thing. Like how criticize the study. Don't criticize. Don't say. I don't. I criticize studies. The authors are connected to the studies. I, I mean, if a study is unethical, I mean, should we just then be hush about these things or it will continue no, to happen? No one said hush about this thing. But we can't talk about them on Twitter? Of, co of course you can talk about well, it. Well, you just said we shouldn't do that. No, no, no. That's not what I said. I said there are forms to do it, Aaron. You well, know, so is Twitter I, a I think form what, what's unethical? It? Okay, let's use the, the Van Epoch phase one study that you, you criticize very openly there. Okay. And so before, before we criticize you. Yeah, no, but before you use that, because this will be a- By the way, Alan, I love you, and I, this is, I'm not angry here. This is just discussion, you know? We're <laughs> friends, I know. No, it's all so good. Everyone, we are friends. If I had emojis, I would have hearts all over. But, um, <laughs> but I want to, before we talk about that trial as a platform, as an example, because it was very highly uh, publicized on social media, uh, Liz, do you want to take on the opportunity to summarize the trial? And then I have Alan and Aaron get into what happened after that. Oh, I want to double check. I know we're talking about the, the Ven Epoch one. for the, double uh, hip lymphomas. Yeah, the, the, no, no, the phase no, one. no, not the ASH one. Yeah. No, the phase one, one the published on Lancet yeah, that included published. standard DLBCL. Yeah, this one, the dose adjusted Epoch R plus Vinetoclax, uh, which was published in Lancet Heme, I believe, right? Or Lancet Oncology, I forgot. Lancet, I believe it was Lancet Oncology. Heme. Or yeah, That's one or the other. Yeah, yeah. I would, I wouldn't, yeah. So I just want to make sure we summarize it in like, you know, one minute or so. And then I want to get Aaron and Alan to get into it. Well, I got to tell you, I thought we were talking about the Alliance trial. So I was caught off guard a little bit here. I was yeah. not prepared. Okay. Well, well, well it's it's the, um, I think we, it is an interview. We can summarize. It's yeah, a go phase ahead. one study. Yeah. It's a phase one study. Oh, so <laughs> we're looking at Venn uh, plus... Dose adjusted epoch, single arm phase one, ages 18 to 80, with histologically confirmed previously untreated DLBCL. So basically, all comers, adult DLBCL, regardless of cell of origin, double hit, or anything like that. Correct. Okay. Liz, how many had non double hit lymphoma enrolled in the study at, uh, over the total patients? I think I that's what oh, Hang on. I'm just, hang on. Let me pull up the. I believe it was eight patients, Aaron. Oh, uh, I thought it was 12 or 13. But maybe I'm wrong. I will. I will tell you, you that, right. like, it's about a third of the patients. Let's let's put it like that. About a third of the patients. You know, we keep. Anyway, we're going to talk about this, but it's like you know, we keep doing these studies, and, and it's you know, and look, I'm also I'm running an R chop plus something study right now, so maybe maybe I should like put the put the shovel down. But there is some element of like knowing not selecting out higher risk populations, although I guess it's a phase one. So maybe that's how you could justify kind of doing all No, comers, when was that but... phase one started, uh, Liz? <sighs> when, when did they start enrolling? I can just tell you if you want. Please do. <laughs> I believe they started enrolling in 2017. That is cool. Um, yes, and that the is cool. CalGB, uh, what is it? The five, uh, is it, someone tell me the five number of lymphoma Yeah, here's that, that here's resulted the, here's... at ASH, when, 2016? It was presented. I, I believe similar authors were on both papers, so I don't. I don't want to feel that they didn't know the data. Yeah. All right. So just at the breakdown, if you look at the table one, we've got fifty percent or fifteen patients with double hit lymphoma, thirty percent DLBCL NOS, uh, two patients with primary mediastinal lymphoma. I don't know what the, I guess this is high grade B cell lymphoma NOS, whatever that is, versus 
previous categories and transformed indolent NHL was only um, two patients or 7%. So about half of the patients were double hit lymphoma. Everyone else was a smattering of other histologies. Yeah, one, um, one third was straight up BLBCL. What's your beef with the trial, Aaron Goodman? Papa, what's wrong with the trial? Yeah, so as a, you know, so this is a phase one study in newly diagnosed uh, uh, a DLBCL, including double hit. It was enriched for double hit. So this is a, the, the whole population is a curable population. We're doing a phase one, so proceed with caution at that point. They have one third of the de novo DLBCL, for those who don't treat a lot of lymphoma, roughly 70%, if not higher, will be cured. Some of those had a low, what we call risk index in, in the disease. Uh, um, so how much um, this, will be cured, you said? I what? How much will be cured of that population? Well, uh, 70%. Well, well, I feel yeah, like that's not. That's a stretch. <laughs> It depends on which depends on which data set you're looking okay, at. Okay, right? so tell me how many will be cured. I think sixty is probably okay, more 60 accurate. Sixty percent is probably more accurate. But Papa Heem was off ten percent. Okay, so yeah. they uh, they uh, they they took these patients that were curative, uh, and, and at the time of studying enrollment, we already had the results of a prior randomized study. Uh, that showed uh, uh, that dose-adjusted EPOC R in run-of-the-mill uh, uh, DLBCL was no better than RCHOP. The curves literally trace each other. Uh, and it also showed uh, that dose-adjusted EPOC R was more toxic, uh, including neuropathy, febrile neutropenia, uh, uh, mucositis. Okay, so we know we have a, a regimen that's no better, um, but more toxic. And then uh, we enrolled patients in that that's study an all, with but that. All comer, but be clear, that's all comers DLBCL, right? So one that's of the criticisms of that study. I have no study. problems with the double hip, all comers. We then enrolled patients on the study after that study resulted with, uh, 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 with DLBCL and um, treated them with dose-adjusted EPOC-R plus an additional agent. So we know without the study that this is only going to be more toxic. I don't need that study. Uh, um, and we already know that this regimen is more toxic than RCHOP in a curable population with RCHOP. That's leaving out the fact that this regimen requires, in some places, hospitalizations, you know, five days of coming and getting the therapy as opposed to RCHOP, which is fairly straightforward. And we know that RCHOP in a healthy trial population has a fairly reasonable safety profile uh, 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 and can be safely done. Okay, so that is my beef with the study. We are signing up patients with curative lymphoma, giving them what we already know is a more toxic regimen, and then further toxifying it. And we are not even going to answer in the study whether this is beneficial. It's a phase one. All we are doing is uh, finding out the dose of venetoclax that we can combine with EPOC. So basically, if you're signing up for this study, you should tell the patients, I'm giving you a more toxic regimen. I'm then going to make it more toxic. And I'm not going to even answer for you in this study whether this is better. Thank you for volunteering. Uh, that's also, the bottom line for those patients. I'll also argue yes, that yeah. actually the preclinical data for throwing in venetoclax is not great. Um, you know, it's a great drug in CLL, which is exquisitely BCL2 dependent. It's a great drug in mantle cell lymphoma, which is exquisitely BCL2 dependent, but there's not that clear dependence on BCL2 and DLBCLs. And even in double hit lymphomas, even though you'd say, oh, BCL2 is rearranged, venetoclax should work, but follicular lymphoma is a BCL2 rearrangement too, and it doesn't work in follicular lymphoma. So there's not only the, the EPOC piece, but from the get-go, I've always actually been skeptical of the activity of venetoclax yeah, and so DLBCL end of statement. Do you agree with me with my beef with the study? Yes, I will agree with okay. you with your beef of the study that basically selecting all comers with DLBCL and giving them EPOC, given what we knew at the time, may not have been the best choice. 
Well, but Alan, was it right for these patients to be enrolled? Yeah. That's my well, question. Well, here, here's the thing. So, Alan, I, right. I, I think for double hit lymphoma, um, I, I, you correct me if I'm wrong. I feel the study is reasonable in the subset of double for, hit. I for guess, double hits, I think it's reasonable. Yeah, for I guess where Aaron, where Aaron is coming from, once you include the regular DLBCL, that's where he has struggled with that. Yeah, that's my understanding for that that's your beef, right? Like the, the run of the mill DLBCL being included in the study. Yeah, I, I have a pretty big beef with it. Understood. Do we know though the run of the mill DLBCLs, the breakdown? Like for example, when this study was started, um, and even today, there's still some so there's even today there's still people who would give their dual expressor right. lymphomas um, dose-adjusted EPOC. So it may Absolutely. be that these run-of-the-mill DLBCLs are dual expressors. And so based on the data at the time, this wouldn't or have, have been completely under. So 40% of patients yeah. had MIC and BCL2 overexpression. Um, the majority had some kind of overexpression. So I guess that would be my only like kind of devil's advocate here is if like, if most of these people were double hit or double expressor, then particularly given what we knew at the time, maybe it wasn't totally inappropriate. No, I'm with you. I'm though. not talking I about double hit. Eliminate the double we're hit. We're talking about the, the OBCL that's not considered double hit, you know, yeah. Yeah. and that could be double expressor or it can have, you know, I don't know, a K67 of 99% or may have a high IPI and may have all of the above, right? So here, here, here's, here's the thing, in my view. You cannot equate the findings of 50303 with the goal of the study. You're not, you're not studying EPOC in this patient. You're studying a new regimen, okay, that has EPOC within it, but you're studying a new regimen here, okay? So, you know, if, if I was consenting a patient to the study, here's what I would say. I would say, you have a disease that we can cure about 60% of the time with our CHOP, 40% of the time this is not cured, either doesn't respond fully or it comes back down the road. Salvaging uh, those 40% may be tricky, it may be complicated, et cetera. We know that not all the, the LBCL is created equal. There are the, the LBCL that have a more aggressive course for one reason or another. There's the LBCL that are a little more indolent to respond very well to chemotherapy. We're doing this study with a regimen that has been shown to be more toxic than, than our CHOP, but not less effective, okay? And we believe that by adding this new drug to it, there may be a benefit. We don't know, that's why we're doing the study. It's very likely that this combination is gonna be more toxic, and that's what no, we're no, trying to find out. No, no, 100% more likely going to be more toxic. Sure, this combination will be more toxic. Even you can say that, okay? But, you know, I don't know who the patients were enrolled. I, don't, I didn't see the patient in front of me to say it was wrong or right to enroll those patients in the study, right? This may have been patients who would have come to me in clinic back in 2017 when we knew less than we know today. And I have said, well, with what I know today, with, with what I have in mind, I mean, it was presented at ASH, but still not published fully. That was th two years after that. Dude, there were authors on the same study. Okay, Fine. I don't want to hear that. Well, yet. but not, okay. every, not everyone. Okay, not at the other thing. Okay. All of the people. Anyway, that's not the point. <laughs> the, the, the hindsight is 2020, Aaron. I think the thing is that 
Right. You don't know. I don't know. You don't know. You didn't see the patient in front of you, the true role of the patient in that study. We keep on making these excuses. If, I don't know no, if this no, was no, an no. isolated Aaron, incident. Aaron, I would Aaron, give you the benefit please, of the doubt. Aaron, this is please, yeah. please let me finish. Okay. okay. I think there are two separate things here. One is, if we look at the design of the trial, should the design of this trial have excluded non-double hit? Probably yes. Okay. But probably yes. looking at it today, knowing what we know today, and with some information that we had back at the time, yes, probably a better trial design would have been excluding uh, the patients who don't, don't have double hit. Now, is it wrong to include the patients who had diffuse large cell lymphoma? That's a different discussion. One thing is this perhaps not the best design. The other thing is, is this wrong, right? And, 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 and that, that's where I think the debate lies in. We all agree with you that very likely that the trial would be best if it didn't include those patients. We will have better information out of it for a question that's a little bit more important at this point, which is how do we treat double hit, which we argued extensively a couple of months ago. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole again, uh, but that's, that's fine. It doesn't answer that question. It wouldn't answer anyway, because of phase one, it will be informative hypothesis generating will give you a signal to run a different trial, which it did. And unfortunately that trial had excess mortality. We know that now that was being presented at ASH. But then the question is knowing what we knew back then, is it wrong to offer that novel therapy to patients? And I don't think necessarily that's the case. I think that there are the patients with the OBCL that may, may benefit from, from, from having a different treatment at that point. So questioning that particular point uh, is the debate. And, 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 and again, questioning why did the investigators enroll the patients in that? Um, I think being accusatory on that, it, it's problematic. I think it's like write a letter to the editor or call the investigator and say, or, or try to get information from the trial itself. Any study has a corresponding author. You can request it. Can you give me more information on who were the, patient, the 10 patients with the LBCL who were enrolled in the trial, one specifics, histology, K67, IPI, whatever is of your interest to kind of make those conclusions. I think the jumping to conclusions is a problem. You know, I, that, so I that's guess, my, my yeah, opinion. I, yeah, I, I think Liz, the, the issue that we're debating, and I, I like how Alan uh, framed it is, um, Obviously, if we're designing it today, we'll have a better design. But the question becomes, uh, what we're debating is, Aaron is saying, enrolling patients with DLBCL run-of-the-mill on this trial is wrong. And what Alan is saying, it's not wrong to enroll. And I think that's where the issue with ethical issues become a problem, right? I mean, if you think something is wrong, as Aaron earlier labeled as possible quote unquote medical error, then we have like a huge thing, obviously. And you can't debate that on social media because to Alan's point, patients are watching and reading this. So do you think it was wrong to enroll patients with DLBCL? Well, it's interesting because the more I'm kind of looking at like this table one here and looking at the patients who actually enrolled on the trial, I think that if I could go back and step in that investigator's shoes in 2017, 
I think there's a lot of them where I could have convinced myself that dose-adjusted EPOC would not have been inappropriate, right? So we agree the 50% double hits, not inappropriate. Um, primary mediastinal patients, many of them would have gotten dose-adjusted EPOC anyway. And then when you start looking at the breakdown of the rearrangements, you know, many of them had a MIC rearrangement. And certainly I think it's a little more clear now, although there's still debate, people have a MIC rearrangement. It's not as bad as double hit, but I don't think at that time that was as clear. Um, many of these people, again, had overexpression by immunohistochemistry. So I feel like, let's say I met, I did have all these case files, all 30 patients in front of me and I could go through. I bet if I went back through and used my brain of 2016, 2017, I could probably feel somewhat comfortable that many of those patients EPOC would not have been appropriate. I guess the more, the trickier question for me is when this trial was written, should it truly have been all comers DLBCL? Did we have enough information at the time to, in the inclusion criteria, specify certain subgroups? And that's the part that I guess I feel a little less clear about. And I wonder what it would, it's like one of those things where you wonder what it would have been like to be a fly on the wall for these discussions, um, both not only between the investigators, but, you know, sometimes, you know, when we kind of talked earlier about, you know, criticizing trials and criticizing authors, I sometimes get uncomfortable um, knowing, like, sometimes I wonder how much control the investigators had, right? If sometimes when these studies are funded by industry, you gotta, you have to compromise a little bit, and you wonder where there are points the investigator maybe had to compromise and do things they didn't feel super great about because they wanted the study funded and done. So I think that's where I struggle. I bet looking at the patients who actually enrolled, it probably wouldn't have been completely inappropriate. Yet I don't. What I'm not sure about is should the inclusion criteria have been as broad as it was at the time. Yeah. Let, me, let me make a counterpoint a question then. Would you, Aaron, would you be having this discussion if the trial was Venetoclax R-CHOP? No, no, uh, that, that would have been fine. I mean, we knew that would have been, we're taking a backbone that is the standard of care uh, as mm -hmm. opposed to a backbone that is more toxic and no more beneficial uh, to, to DLPCL. Understood. So your, your issue here is with EPOC being the backbone, not- EPOC the being the backbone, which is a- more, more toxic, toxic regimen. And adding a drug, it's, yes, and venetoclax is a big deal drug, so it's it, scary it to add that to anything. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. I agree with yeah. you. So, 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 so here, here, you know, here, here's the issue again. We're going back to the same point. We, without the caveats of the study, what was being studied was not dose-adjusted epoch. What was being studied was venetoclax dose-adjusted epoch. That's a different regimen. The new regimen is a separate regimen. So, you know, you can infer that the toxicity is going to be more, right? That very certainly is going to be more because then RCHOP or then EPOC alone, you cannot, you cannot infer that this regimen is going to be worse. It's going to be the same as EPOC. It's going to be the same as RCHOP. You can't. The study yeah. was, the study was evaluating Venetoclax EPOC. Oh. It was not evaluating EPOC. It's a different situation. I don't know. I think, though, this is where phase ones gets tricky, and I, I completely get it. And I think when you're doing phase ones in, you know, let's say a metastatic pancreatic cancer patient who has failed a lot versus mm -hmm. uh, whose therapy has failed them, excuse me, uh, 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 as opposed to a newly diagnosed, very healthy trial population curable malignancy, I just think my opinion 
is mm -hmm. that I think that the 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 bar for safety benefit it's just it's different it's a different story and Agreed. we had in and we had I you guys keep on coming up with these little pieces well maybe there was a mick or you know no they run the they ran the randomized study forget about the double hits there was a good amount of double expressors is a study as a whole the best data we had at the time was no benefit we should not have been using it in any of those patients uh, uh, uh and we people still do you, use you, it say, I, you yeah. think there were you feel confident saying there were enough double hits well, and double expressors to I, make I, that assessment liz i think uh, we, uh, we no but have, no. but but we can't then assume it's better i mean like we can't like no this but is you going back to another thing i mean the same yeah. we didn't have that information aaron for but i think but alan certainly I think for not I, double hit or double yeah. expresses in that study. I just, sorry, sorry, Shadi, I just want to compliment what Aaron is saying. Yes, I agree. The bar for safety is different if someone is in the fifth line of yeah. therapy, yeah. is the yeah. first line of therapy. Yeah. No questions asked here. However, okay, you got to agree with me that we're not doing great by the species of having a 60% cure rate. We want a 100% cure rate. So there's 40% of patients who are underserved by the regimens that we have. The way to make it better is to study those regimens in the first line which is where we have the highest chance for a cure in these patients, right? I mean, if you're gonna study, who's gonna study venetoclax, EPOC in third line? I mean, these patients received, they received anthracyclines already. Who's gonna receive Van Archop in second line? I'm not asking them not to study, it's just to, all they had to do in 2017 was switch their inclusion criteria to double hit only, done. Well, you still have the, the diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, that's not cured, I mean, I'm not talking about double hit. I'm talking about DLBCL, run-of-mill DLBCL. We have 40% of patients who are either going to have primary refractory so disease. So show it's beneficial in the highest risk population and then maybe try it in these, these oh, but ones. But, but Alan, the, the, yeah. Alan, what Aaron was saying is, what Aaron is saying, if you were to design, I mean, I think we all agree with you that 60% mm -hmm. would love for this to be 100%. Yeah. No argument there. I think what Aaron is saying that um, in the first line, you can study the backbone, which is RCHOP plus a novel agent, you know, sure. so RCHOP plus vinitoclax in run of the mill DLBCL and see if you improve on the 60% and do the phase one slash phase two. I think the concern is that he brings up, and I, I, I have to say that I, I have similar concerns that in the, in the frontline setting, if you're taking a regimen that you know already more toxic as a backbone than the other one, and it's no more effective, and you add another agent to it, it's extremely unlikely that it's not going to be more toxic. And, and once you get- No one is arguing with that. Well, right. But once you get into more toxicity, then you worry about treatment-related mortality, and especially mm -hmm. in a phase one setting, where you know that's really where the, the issue is. And I think there were some deaths on the trial in that phase. There was one death on the study. There were more deaths on the, on the, the, phase, the, the alliance trial, the phase three trial that right. they suspended afterwards because of this regimen caused more death in the patients. That's what the ASH abstract is, is showing, which is not something we knew back then. And I want to remind you that the mortality, the treatment-related mortality in 50303 was the same for our CHOP and EPOC, was 2.1% in both arms. No difference, okay? It was more toxic in neutropenic fever, but it was not higher mortality rates. Right. So you gotta take that in consideration as well. And I understand, and again, hindsight is 2020. We're looking back with our brains from today. You cannot dissociate what you know today from what you knew then, from what you knew, you know, at the time the study was being designed. As, and I agree, I mean, if I was designing the study today, 
I would not have included the, the standard diffuse light. So why, why, why can't studies like this, Alan, Aaron, and Liz, all of you, why can't they be amended? So for example, the trial did not enroll in like six months, right? I mean, let's say it started in 2017. And, you know, as we knew more towards the end of 2017, why can't I amend the trial and change the backbone? It can be amended. I mean, it's, it's, it's burdensome, but, but, but it certainly can be, can be amended. I mean, that's partly why the studies have data safety monitoring boards. You know, you have stopping rules, you have the SMBs, you have oversight of the study to understand, is this within what preemptively as the trial was, was designed, that what is the agreed upon toxicity rate, neutropenia rate, whatever, death rate, you know, uh, you're designing a phase one study, you include those criteria in the phase one study. The study continued because in spite of what a different study showed, right, uh, did not show more mortality, showed more toxicity, and, you know, obviously the population is not the same in both studies. I don't know, it was not part of the, this, this, the SMB. Someone made a decision that this doesn't need to be changed or amended or stopped at that point, which is a different decision than they made on the Alliance trial because they saw excess deaths and they stopped the study, right? I mean, these things are dynamic. And you're looking here and it's, you know, you had more patients, you ended up seeing more, more things with more patients, right? Phase one, again, highly selected patients, patients who are willing to undergo a phase one study in the frontline setting. I mean, there's a number, a number of things here. I'll, I'll tell you my experience. I, I, I have a phase one that, you know, we wrote, I ran, which was, uh, you know, for patients with high risk uh, uh, hematologic malignancies for undergoing an autologous transplant, that we're consolidating with Epinevo after that for six months. Okay. So it is a toxic regimen. We understood there was a strong rationale for it. Uh, a number of the cohorts didn't work for lymphoma. It worked great in the phase one for myeloma. It worked okay. But, you know, it is something that's more aggressive. We knew about it, but we knew for the diffuse large cell lymphomas, for instance, that transplants were working 50% of the time. We want to improve on that. This was study. We had stopping rules. It was evaluated on a weekly basis. That's, you know, those nuances are present in studies. No one is just throwing the study and not, let's just look at the results at the end of the day, right? This so Aaron, Aaron um, you got into some uh, arguments about the study with authors of the trial. Uh, no, I did I did not comment, I, I stopped. I, 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 I stopped once I saw authors were pissed and I, I did not respond to any, uh, any of them. Um, um, and I never actually specifically call out an author was the study. I said I thought there were some ethical concerns, which I still feel and strongly say. You can post this on social media. That is uh, my belief. And anyone I've explained this to, because I ran it by my wife, because I was like, I felt bad. And I ran it by people who were not. And I spelled out everything. So I have looked at the supplement that people included also. Uh, I, I feel like most, actually, I feel like everyone has, has agreed with me. And I've even debated calling those authors, um, which I plan to. And I'm hoping to run to them to Ash and talk about it in person, because I don't want these people pissed at me. I, I, I want people to like me. And, and if, people are angry at me and think I'm bad. I, I do want to know, I want that feedback. Cause you know, let's like, you know, sometimes, you know, it's like a patient thought you were rude. Like that's important to know because you want to correct that. And I don't want to come across as that. So I do take this feedback importantly and I saw some of it. So I am going to reach out to those authors, whether they're receptive or not, I, I don't know, um, but uh, I'm going to try. But I still feel strongly that the study 
was unethical. And again, I, you know, I, I, I'm sorry if that's going to then be a deal breaker in our relationship, uh, which it might be. Uh, uh, that's the case. So, well, so I think, I, I think that that's a that's a big deal when you say yeah. the study is unethical. Um, I want to. It's not. It's not. It'd be one thing if this was like the first time ever. It's like you know, there's a gazillion things we do in clinical trials that are unethical, unfortunately, and it, they continue to happen. So I feel like maybe now we can fix this by being more vocal about it instead of, you know, not. Yeah. I want to, I want to hear from Liz and Alan is the accusation that the study is, we're not taught, we're taking away now the science. Liz, do you think it was unethical? And Alan, do you think unethical? Liz, you go first about the unethical component. I got to tell you, I'm struggling with this a little bit because, like, there are people on this author list that, like, exactly. I this, really this, enjoy this it comes in. I don't think you should put them on the spot. They, I don't, uh, Shadi. I mean, I don't care. You can bar me from your lymphoma trial forever. I'm happy teaching the medical students and residents. I, I have my thing. I'm perfectly fine with it. This is where, and I think this is part of the problem. I don't think we can be open as a community because of the implications of being open uh, about things we disagree with in the control. I, I, and this is, I know this is a fact in myeloma and other things you can't be, you get kind of blackballed. So I do not want my colleagues who are heavily investigated with their careers to have to comment on this. I don't care. So I'll, I'll comment on it. And I'm very comfortable. So why why don't you care? Why don't you care? Because I love, I love my job. I, I, I get to live in San Diego. I teach. Uh, uh, I, I think I have interesting research. I love my clinical responsibilities. And um, I've accepted the fact that I have no, I run clinical trials, but like that, being one of those or being in those groups, I don't have much of an interest in it. And so if they say this guy sucks and he's an idiot and we don't ever want him, it doesn't bother me. They're still inviting me to ask to write newspaper articles and Alan, things like that. So, Alan, yeah. do, you, do you think there's some ethical issues with the paper? No. I mean, and I really, I, I, I don't, I'm a from a doctor. I'm not in academia. This is not going to affect my career. If I really thought this this was an athlete. What do you mean? You're as academic as they get. My goodness. Yeah, you run a bunch I'm of not, trials. Are you I'm kidding not, me? I'm not in an academic center. That's what you're not. What at the you're pretty academic but, in my. Yeah, yeah but, you can't use that as an excuse. Yeah, <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. But but my point here <laughs> being, uh, thank you for, for 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 the compliment. I appreciate that. But uh, no, I really don't think it's unethical because, you know, as I said before, I think there are ways to, to see it. I, I don't know specifically what was going through the mind of the of treating physician at that point that led them to believe that this potentially was the best option for that patient. Okay. Alan, can I ask you a different question then? Yes. I just want to see if we can say that anything's unethical. How about, let's, and I know you don't treat myeloma, but I'm going to bring up this study. How okay. about the Boston study that enrolled in the United States uh, that had a control arm of fit? Uh, uh, you're drinking some whiskey before. That's good. You're going to need it. Um, that had some fit Burn. patients who were getting Velcade decks, which by far and away, we had numerous times that have shown that that was inferior to many other available things in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, randomized to Selenex or Velcade decks. Would you call that uh, opening that study and enrolling with uh, unethical? I would call it wrong. It's a wrong study. Not unethical, though. You're giving a patient. What? But what is unethical? I don't. I don't know. I don't know specifically for my own. Because again, standards of ethics and clinical. No, 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 no. I, I'm just thinking because I'm not a myeloma doctor, so I don't think you need to be one. What? What line was like a fourth line study? No, you could have seconds, and you could have had Velcade Dex as part of your induction. 
You can yeah. read my letter to Lance. That that's on this. not. That's but, that's yes. I agree with okay. you. I think that's. But but you know, I'm saying this particular one. I I don't think that's so. fine. That's fine. But my yeah. point is that you know. despite all the measures we have, and, and and these are not isolated occurrences, and I think we do need to start again. I've made my opinion, and you guys are pointing out some good things. You're making me think, and and, and I think we do need to debate these maybe on social media. Uh, 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 you know, do, I think we do. I think I think a, a big. If I can, if I can give you any feedback here on on that particular dis discussion on Twitter, I think there's one comment that you made that perhaps resonated very bad with 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 the authors and may have elicited a lot of this perhaps discomfort with it. So, you know, I think you can direct message me that one so I can yeah, see it. I will direct message you, but, but, uh, but I thought I took it down or I, what I you mean direct message. Like We're on the podcast. Which one was that? This is a pod, this uh, one, yeah. the podcast. Yeah, you can read it. Uh, listen, I, 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 I know I, I, I won't put Aaron in a bad spot. No, you can read it. I, 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 I did it. So like, so, I, again, I'm trying to make okay, friends with so, everyone. I don't want people hating me. So did you ever, does it, I'm just curious. Your comment was. No, let Liz talk. I just have a question. Do you, do you. So I actually I didn't see this whole exchange. So maybe this is good. Maybe this is bad. But like, you you have to. I, I'm starting to wonder. Like we're having this conversation now, and like I was looking at like when. Okay, so people are asking when the study enrolls. So February 2017 to June 2019. For what it's worth, uh, 50303 wasn't published until July of 2019. Whatever, take that with a grain of salt. With the abstract but, with the PFS. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But, but whatever. But you know, you have to wonder. Did I'm wondering if some of this discussion, like again, we don't, we weren't in the room when people had this discussion about the study. We weren't in the room with the conversations with the industry sponsor. We we weren't in the room for any of this. And so I do, you know, you have to wonder if maybe some of the criticisms you're pointing out, maybe the authors themselves were fully aware of, and maybe you're just kind of striking a chord. Um, with questions they've already asked and wrestled with. It's possible. Yeah, so I agree, it's possible. And you know, to the point of the abstract, Aaron, you cannot say a 400 word abstract that's on, on, on Ash is sufficient to inform enough as, as it would be a full manuscript. It was sufficient to stop later. a more toxic regimen. I think it was, that's, that's my a, opinion. That's a debate. So you, disagree, but, so you kept on giving it, it's okay. I was enough okay. for me. That's a debate, but let's go back to your comment then because <laughs> I'm sure people are curious now. I mean, I stopped you, the second I saw that, I stopped. You, you, you said, how can you look someone in the eye with non-double hit DLBCL and consent them for the study and feel good about it? So, I, I think that comment. I mean, I think that comment goes straight to the investigators who consented the patients to the yes. study. And my point here is that, you know, it, it, it is a loaded, loaded comment, Aaron. It's a loaded comment. You are, you are, you. I'm sorry. You are going straight to the core of what it is being a physician, right? Being a physician is trying to do what's best for your patient. It's trying to give them the best outcome with the most safety and whatever suits their life and their choices, right? So, so, so when you're saying something like this, you're telling a physician that how come they did this? This is like egregious that, you know, how come you offer this trial? This is like horrible. How do you feel good about it? That, that is a very loaded comment, Aaron. And, and you know, I think that if, if, if I were a patient following your Twitter feed, and you have a number of them, I, I'd be like, 
questioning a lot of things that it's an accusation. It, it is an accusation. It's a, it's, it is, I'm sorry. It is a, it veiled, perhaps not your intent even, but it is a loaded accusation to the investigators that they're unethical. And, and if I was on the other side, if I was an author on the study, I'll be really upset. You know, I, I would personally upset. It would, it would rock my, my own beliefs of what's being a good physician and a decent physician. I think we need to establish a baseline of that, you know, our colleagues are at least honest and, and, and have integrity and they may have had reasons to, to, to do the study or not. That's my point, um, you know, if I can give any feedback. And I think that's, that's possibly what, what struck wrong with the number of dispositions. Aaron, any comments on that? Yeah, no, no, that, that, yeah, that, that, that you know, I'm not going to make an excuse. It was a bad tweet, and I apologize. And, and I, will I will talk to the, uh, the investigators. Uh, I, I agree with you completely on that. Okay. Thank you. I think that's all. I think everything else that you commented yeah. was completely fair. Uh, I think that yeah. that one was like it, a bad one. But because I do, I, I completely agree with you. All I can say is what I should have said for is I could have, I can't look someone in the eye, uh, 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 you know, as you did that consent, which I thought was good for the study, uh, I still feel that I don't see how someone would agree to that study. Uh, that, that, and again, that's fine. My, we, that was a bad, that was, you know, the classic to get around, you know, and that was, you know, I, I don't know what I was thinking when I did that. Bad, bad thought. We all make bad decisions. So we, we make I bad apologize. Decisions. But, uh, and, we, and the thing yeah. is, the filter has no filter. We have all like, perhaps started typing something because we're upset or whatever and just kind of comes I, out. Today, I, right? I think the conclusion for me is we need to get Liz more on social media. I think Liz, <laughs> where, where were you when all of this was yeah, happening? there. But, was but it the she, last? If it was it the last two weeks? If so, I was on service. That's my excuse. Mm. Uh, Liz, I was on service last week. I managed to still fire off a few tweets. You know. <laughs> well, you're just a better at using your time than I am, sir. Uh, and, well, and, look, I think this was this is great. We've talked about um, real world evidence in clinical trials. We've talked about the difficulty of really criticizing clinical trials on social media. We use this trial as an example, but I want to try to kind of level set and have a path forward. And, uh, you know, in the next few minutes, maybe maybe I want to try to see what, what what's next. So, um, Aaron, I mean, what what is, I don't know, what is, what is next? Like, how do we, do you, are you calling for, do you feel... We need the clinical trial reform. Do you feel there are issues? Like, I, I don't know, like I'm trying to figure well, out. There, there's, let me tell you why I'm asking this. I'm asking this because I think we can all agree there are no perfect clinical trials, right? I mean, I, I would, uh, in fact, if you ever submit a paper and you don't have limitations at the end of the paper in the discussion or the shortcomings of whatever you're publishing, the reviewers will send back and they will say, well, talk about the limitations. There are limitations to everything. So in the absence of perfect studies, what's the path forward? Well, you know, I, I can't, you know, as I always say, like, you know, and, I, and when I get, you know, people ask me, what's your thoughts on, you know, reforming Medicare and all these things, you know, I, I can't fix everything. That's, and that's not, I, know I can do what I can do, but what I can do and what I think is successful is I do think in a, in a, not the way that my one tweet that Alan pointed out, that was not the way to do it, but there is a way to bring up these issues uh, uh, on social media. 
uh, um, and, and make people think about them, especially those in training in, in the newer oncologists. And, and I, I had a, a young uh, assistant professor message me saying, I agree completely with you, but like, how, you know, I don't, how, what are you going to do? You're not changing anything. And, and that's where I disagree. You know, um, we were, we, Cario Farm, I applaud them, even though I hate their drug. Uh, uh, I don't hate their drug. I don't think their drug's helpful. Uh, um, they recently changed the control arm from Palmdex to Elo Palmdex in their randomized study, which was great. That's a great study now. It's like, a, it's going to answer a question. Uh, I know that a study that I was critical of and pointed out to, to people that was using a very toxic drug in smoldering myeloma, uh, um, asymptomatic patients giving them a serious drug that should not be studied in the smoldering setting uh, has been closed, uh, partially due to some things that I brought up. So I think, you know, that's what I can do. And, um, you know, my hope is that the, the, the trialist, those writing it, which is not me, that's not my role, um, um, with the increased awareness and maybe a little bit of scrutiny, uh, start taking these things into account. Now, uh, th that's what I can do. Maybe the other investigators have solutions from the, you know, writing the trial standpoint. Uh, obviously, yeah, make it be easier to make changes, uh, like, but that's easier said than done. I don't know how to do that. Uh, um, or, you know, fix the problem with, you know, pharmaceuticals have their motives, you know, their motive is to, yeah, they want to help people, but they want to sell more of their drugs. So, you know, even these big cooperative groups, you know, large, a lot of their money comes still from them. So you got to please them. You have to make these compromises. I don't know how to fix that. That's a huge problem. Um, Liz? I, I, I think a lot of it does, there's a lot, there's a lot that needs to be fixed, right? And I think that I agree with Aaron that unfortunately dollars um, carry a lot of weight. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think there's a lot of things we've all compromised on when writing trials because the sponsor, whoever that may be, um, wanted it done a certain way. And you, at the end of the day, you want your trial, you want your patients to get drugs, whatever, and sometimes you end up compromising. And so I, I do think there is some, going back to some of the real world evidence stuff we talked about earlier, I do think there's a push to make clinical trial populations mirror the real world a little bit more. Look, it's not perfect and it's not going to be perfect. Like I was part of a um, NCI uh, discussion about how to get older patients better engaged and enrolled in clinical trials and how do we make, therefore, make clinical trials more friendly for older patients. Um, there's many posh populations where we should be sitting down and talking about these things. But I, I think the hard part at the end of the day is where the money is coming from and it would be nice for there to be just pots of money where we could use whatever drug we wanted and no one had to weigh in. I'm sure there would be some sort of fallout of that too. So I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that I have an immediate solution other than all of us who are writing these trials can advocate the best we can, be cognizant the best we can. Um, one that I'm involved in right now, or just now, we know that um, my um, older patients at DLBCL, multiple people have told me, you know, what are you gonna do when Polarex comes out? So we're trying to think about that now. Um, there's going to be data that's gonna ch possibly change how we do things. So I think my, my, what I can do is make my studies good and be responsive to data and just kind of hope other people do the same. Alan? I think that's a, a lot. Do you, do you want to have another hour for another podcast? On this? I think that's a very, like we should have one very long the reforming clinical trials. Very long conversation. I think, I think, you know, one, I, I agree with, with Liz's comment. I think, I mean, I, I think there are competing interests uh, in, in, in all that we do, right. In, in research, uh, independent of what the side things are. It's a farmer or something criticizing farmer or reviewing. There's always a competing interest 
uh, one way or another. They may be financial, they may be non-financial. Uh, lots of times the strongest one is the financial one. But um, you know, I, I think that efforts to minimize those competing interests and conflicts of interest are important in any, any kind of research. Uh, I think that uh, 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 particularly pharma companies should incorporate patient advocates when designing a trial. Uh, you know, there are patient advocacy uh, groups that are very knowledgeable, very strong. I don't know if any of, of if Liz or Aaron went to the Vail Cancer Camp, ASCO, ACR, they had, you, you did, right? So I did too. They had a patient advocate in the room, at least in my group, helping us with our trial designs. And, and that was tremendously helpful. Did you have that too, Liz? We did. And also that is something that I, I can't speak for every working group of every intergroup, but at least mm -hmm. from my experience on the lymphoma committee on SWAB, we have an amazing patient advocate who brings so much to the table. Yeah, They bring too much to the table, which is in the intergroups, they have it, but I don't think necessarily pharma companies have that uh, in their docket when they're designing trials, the trials that are, you know, pharma initiated and come to us. And I think that should be important to have, right? Um, so that's one aspect. I think that there should be an effort to include underserved populations. I'll applaud Roche and Genentech, for instance. We ran a trial for COVID with TOSI and a trial specifically uh, enrolled uh, Hispanics and, and African-Americans uh, in the study. Uh, it was designed for that. And we had a separate trial that was all comers, but we have one trial that you know, really, really the majority of patients need to be from, from one of these populations, um, which, so, you know, there are efforts uh, that, that are starting to, to come into play to incorporate uh, more real world populations, more uh, uh, diverse populations in clinical trials that will be more informative to all of us. I think that uh, uh, watchdogs are, are necessary to keep people in check. I think the watchdogs need to be watched as well because lots of times they end up having conflicts of interest too um, because you know sometimes careers are made out of being a watchdog different debate here but uh, I think you know I think everyone is to just just the better I, I don't have an answer I really don't Shadi but, I have one more answer um, yeah because I do it and I think it's easy actually you know I see a lot of complaints on social media about trial inclusion like you know why do they exclude HIV for no reason? Happens all the time, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the clinical trial. So I've made it a practice. Uh, the few studies that get offered me, if a clinical study gets sent to me and they exclude HIV for really no legitimate reason, sometimes there might be, I just say, no, I say, no, thank you. The problem is it's, it's moot because um, everyone else is still going to say yes and the study will be done. But if us as investigators all truly walk the talk, you know, talk, you know, did what we believe that we really should do that, we would just all say no to these studies, but we don't. So, but I they, do. These, come on, there's <laughs> what? I do. I do. But, but, no, but, 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 but the studies will get done. To that the sponsors point. can't do the studies without investigators agreeing to Aaron, do it. I'll but, tell but you, you know that's what? A pet peeve. I'm going to tell Aaron that's a pet peeve of mine too. And I will also tell you, I was successful in getting um, somebody who removed that from exclusion criteria. Well, that's awesome. We need more Liz Brems. There you go. And I think, you know, I think that, that, that hits uh, an important point, Aaron. Uh, I think that, and again, I'm not in an academic center, so I have no horse in this fight or no dog in this fight, that academic, no, that's, that's just because it doesn't affect me. But I think promotion ranks for academia should start removing number of publications from criteria for promotion because 
that does that does elicit that publisher parish kind of yeah it's uh, financial for the investigator no of course yes <laughs> exactly it does, yeah it does it does elicit the publisher parish paranoia and people may end up accepting studies that uh, otherwise they may say yeah. no to it's... and um you know and that's one thing and the second thing is that we need to be more nimble in changing studies as new data come along even if the study is already ongoing is the there's there's this the the, the sunk cost bias in, in in clinical trials right a lot of times pharma puts so much money already in the study and something comes along to disprove the theory and they're like well we're already bought in we need to finish it that that sunk cost bias needs to be removed and say hey data came along let's just stop it Right, and uh, so these are the reforms that need to happen. It, it, it's a up, uphill battle. It's a, it's a tremendous one. I, but, but I have to say, this is uh, this is a lot of fun, a lot of fun, and actually really valuable in terms of everything that we talked about. I, I, I personally find having these conversations in a longer format, like a podcast or a webinar or something, way more valuable for the debaters as well as listeners than really. A Twitter thread or like a 240 or 280 characters. I don't know about you, but I, I feel strongly that the only way to rehash things is to give opportunities to talk about them in a longer format. Yes, but if it weren't for the Twitter thread, we would not be having this discussion. <laughs> I like that. Did I, was I supposed to ask you all anything that I totally forgot or overlooked uh, before we, uh, we part ways and see each other at Ash? No, no. time we're having a beer together at Ash. I think that's the question. Yes, I, uh, any day. I, I, you know, I'm there for all five. I blocked off my clinic, so. I'm there uh, the four, the tenth, and I depart the fourteenth, and then yeah. I'm gonna have like a bag full of t-shirts, Aaron Goodman, Papa. So oh, I want a hundred of them. Ladies. I like the I like the women ones better. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I wore my wife by accident. I was like, ah, I like this. <laughs> I don't think those will fit me. I, I still want <laughs> Liz, uh, if I see you at Ash, I'll give you one day. Otherwise, please send me your address. Look, Liz Brem, Alan Skarbnik, and Papa Aaron Goodman, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. I, I'm going to keep calling on you because I love having you on. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thanks for having us. And the star of the show is Aaron's daughter. baby. You know, so I don't know if you heard, she cried. Uh, so it's just me and the baby right now. Um, so she cried a little bit. And then I did the move. Um, for any parents out there, um, they know that it's called My Baby Bum. Okay. It's this YouTube oh, thing. It's like, crack, it's like yet. crack for kids. Uh, you know, it, it, it never fails. They, they calm down and it allowed us to have this podcast. So I want to thank My Baby oh, Bum. Yeah. It has 10 billion views my on YouTube. Oh my God. My I'm Baby so Bum. B-A-B-Y-B-U-M. And for Three kids and you, works every time. For yep. those of you listening or watching on YouTube, now you've got a free tip. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. Appreciate your support. Please let me know what you think of this episode and other episodes. You know that I love debates on the podcast, and that's really why we have this podcast. Okay. Well, you can let me know how I'm doing by either direct messaging me on Twitter at Chadi Navhan or by visiting the website and sending me a direct message from there. You can also send me an email to Shadi Navhan, OO at Outlook.com. 
I appreciate your support. Let me know if you want one of the podcast t-shirts. I gladly send them to you, but we haven't been able to send these internationally, frankly. So you got to be in the U.S. for now, and I will send you one. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Mark Twain. Substitute dam, substitute dam. Every time you're inclined to write very, your editor will delete it and the writing will be just as it should be. Until next time, take care.